Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, it is good to be with you guys. I'm normally here on uh, Tuesday nights. And I will confess that even though I am a part of that group, this group is a lot more awake. So it's just really fun to teach. The joke got a much bigger laugh, and um, it's just great to be with you guys and get to see faces that um, I haven't been able to see for a long time. And the title of our lesson today is God's Timing and Plan Are Perfect. And I think as we get a little farther removed from 2020, one day we'll look back and we'll be able to laugh about a few things, but we'll also... I think reflect on different lessons that we have learned. And I think for most of us, waiting will be a big one. I don't think there's anyone, and does anyone like to wait? I didn't think so. Um, I never thought that I would be giddy with joy to be the fourth person in line at Trader Joe's outside the building. Um, We used to think about grocery lines indoors, but um, to see stores with lines out the front, outside, and Um, just, you know, waiting for toilet paper to be restocked, Um, waiting for a mask to come in, actually being excited that for my birthday I got a monogrammed mask. I mean, who who would have thought, like, a year ago, like, I'd be excited about that? Um, You know, anxious to go back to work, for our kids to be able to go back to school. Um, On a more serious note, if you've had to get a COVID test, if you didn't get the rapid one and you had to wait three and four and five days, or um, even more serious, having to put off elective surgeries. So many things that we have been waiting on in 2020, waiting on a vaccine, all these things. And tonight, or this morning, what we're looking at is the waiting period of three days that happened between the lesson last week and what we're looking at this week. And it takes place, uh, the last verse of chapter four says, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. And I love it that it gives us that imagery of she is gearing up for battle, putting on her royal robes, getting ready to look good. And it says that um, she has chosen action at this point. And up to this point, Mordecai was really the one leading her and giving her instructions. And we see now that she's really taking the lead. And Mordecai is just falling right into step with that. And as we look at this, um, we're going to first look at what happens when we wait on God. That's the the first uh, letter on your outline, letter A. What happens when we wait on God? Isaiah 40, 31, it was also in that song that we saw. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Charles Swindoll, who probably most of you are familiar with, talks about five things that happen when we wait, and we're going to look at those. The first one is that God works on others that are involved. And we probably could all list off a story about that. A lot of them are probably personal because we were praying that God would work in the other person's heart. But it could be, um, it could be with a boss. It could be with a spouse. It could be a wayward child. Any number of relationships where we feel like we need to have a difficult conversation or we want an outcome. And by waiting, we pray for that person and we allow God to work in that person's heart. Proverbs talks about how God controls the heart of the king, whether he's a believer or not. God's there, his creator, made in the image of God, and God can turn that heart any direction that he chooses. Uh, God is readying a heart to prepare for work to be done. So waiting on him, praying for that person, and allowing him 
to work on those others that are involved. And number two, we gain new strength. Verse 31 says, they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. God will always empower and enable us to do whatever he has called us to do. There is no assignment too big that the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead cannot empower us to do when we spend time with the Lord and allow him to fill us for that work. It's one thing to resolve to do something, it's quite another to carry it out. And so she needed that strength. Um, she was facing death. If she went before the king and he was not happy about it, she could literally be put to death. So she was building her resolve. She was pausing to wait on God. And also during that time, number three, we gain a new perspective. It says we mount up with wings like eagles. How many of you have gotten to see an eagle in person? I feel like most of the time for me it's been on video or a picture. But it, it must be so majestic to see that in real life. And the amazing bald eagle can fly up to 10,000 feet high. It can look like a small airplane. It has the ability to lock its wings in certain positions that it can literally just soar, not flapping its wings in fury, but just soaring through a storm. And it's such a picture of how we, when we rest in the Lord, when we wait on him, he gives us that resolve and we can stand strong in that storm. That eagle is that symbol of strength and courage. And that's what Esther's gaining. That's what she's gearing up for in that waiting period. It's not that nothing's happening. It's the unseen, like we've talked about many times in this book, but he's preparing her to get a better perspective. And oftentimes we think, uh, maybe it's for a an, uh, fine arts performance or a sport outing, that if we have the front row seat, we think that we have the best seat, right? It's like, I paid the big bucks, I'm gonna have the best view, but we still need the jumbotron. We still need the replay. Because really, when we're super up close to something, we can't see the other aspects. And God says, I want you to look at my ways. They're higher than yours. I want to give you a new perspective and see this through the lens of my plan for you. So she gained that new perspective. Four, she stored up energy for the battle. Sometimes we just need to sit and draw up God's refreshing um, spirit in us. And it's great to go on vacation, but for most of us, that usually only happens about once a year. And that's why God, in his wisdom, in the Ten Commandments, not a suggestion, a commandment said to rest. He gives us a Sabbath, and whether that's Saturday or Sunday for you, doesn't matter. It's a day of rest built into your week. We look at the seven days of creation. God didn't really need to rest on the seventh day. He needs nothing. But he set that example for us because he knew it was so important. And I have a confession to make. If my family were here, I have a nickname that unfortunately got coined that way on the Sabbath of Sunday Sarah. And it started about two years ago, I think, and I can't remember if my husband is to blame or my children, but they've all agreed that there is a version of Sunday Sarah that after church, that's, you know, get lunch, and then it's laundry, it's groceries, it's school lunches, cleaning the house, basically anything that didn't happen the other six days. And we would laugh about it, not always laughing, but um, it really it's not funny if you think about, I don't want my kids to grow up thinking, oh, Sunday, that's the day my mom was mean. That's the day that she was yelling. Um, and so one of the things that um, as we've gone through this time of less hurry, that I've really tried to work on a routine where it's not um, all taking place on that day and dividing things up and just being really, really intentional about our time that we would have that one day a week that's our refuge, that time to draw in. And not just weekly, but daily. What does your personal time with God look like? Um, 
you know, we see the picture of Jesus getting up early in the morning to spend time with his father. And if he needed that, how much more do we need that, right? And whether it's the morning for you um, or the evening, taking that time to get before the Lord and to be quiet before him. If you want to jot down this verse, Isaiah 30, 15 says, This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. It's interesting the way that that verse ends. But you would have none of it. He's saying in repentance and rest, find that, that time to get alone with me in any hour and in any situation. That's what makes it supernatural. It's not a nap. It's getting alone with God. Confess the things that are worrying you. Confess the things you're angry about. Find that repentance and rest. And then quietness and trust. I think one of the hardest things for us in our society, it's why Pam has us turn our phones off, is there is always something demanding our attention. It's quite often something on our phones, whether it's a text or a voicemail or social media, whether it's the 24-hour news cycle. There are things constantly vying for our attention. And God would just say, quiet out all the noise of the world so that you can hear me clearly and trust. Press in. Focus on me without distraction. Trust me when you don't see what I am actively doing behind the scenes, the message of this whole book. We're so hurried, and of all the different images that we see of Christ in the New Testament, we never see him hurried. And he was on a mission to save the world. So I can guarantee that whatever he has placed on our plate, that he will give us the time. He will equip us and empower us and enable us. When we're hurried, we don't have time to love people. We don't have time to see situations through the lens and the perspective that God would have us. So as Esther waited, she was quiet before God, gaining strength, keeping in mind that what awaited her could be her own death. But she moved forward. And often what God does in us while we wait is just as important as what we're waiting for. We probably all have a testimony about that. What did God do in you while you were waiting? beautiful, beautiful testimony. Number five, we strengthen our resolve to walk and to not faint. As we wait on God, we strengthen our perseverance and we resolve to go ahead and do what God has laid out for us. Another beautiful scripture from Isaiah chapter 41 verses 10 through 13 says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. We think about last week. She said, if I perish, I perish. She was willing to lay it all on the line. But this verse tells us that those who are against his children, that they shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. She couldn't see him, but God was there. He was holding her hand as she went before that king. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who will help you. That's his promise that we can claim, that Esther claimed back then, and that we can claim today in 2020. So be on your outline, how do we wait on God? Wonderful quote by John Newton. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none that you can ever ask too much. We have to get the right focus. That's number one, getting the right focus. So many times we ask 
too little when God has so much for us. And as we turn our eyes upon him and give him our undivided attention, once again, he changes our perspective. And when I think of focus and I think about um, looking at God, I can't help but think of one of our favorite, probably for many of us, hymns, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And as I was thinking about that, um, it's something prompted me to just look up the story behind the song. And for many of you, if you love music and you research especially the hymns, but many of our um, praise and worship songs as well, there's a story behind the song, something that inspired them. And this is no exception. Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus was actually written by Helen Howarth Limmel, who felt inspired to write this song after reading a tract entitled Focused, written by Lilius Trotter two decades earlier and on a different continent. So really it was the story of two women woven together. She was born in 1863 in England. Helen's pastor father moved the family to the U.S. to Wisconsin when she was 12. And from an early age, her parents knew that she had a gift of, of singing and writing, and she earned a reputation for her talent. She traveled throughout America holding concerts. Then she moved back to Germany in 1907 to refine her singing ability, and there she met and married a wealthy European gentleman. After four years in Europe, as the fires of World War I smoldered, Helen returned to the U.S., touring with a mixture of her own patriotic songs and familiar hymns, and she even taught voice at the Moody Bible Institute. At the pinnacle of that fame, tragedy struck. Helen went blind and her husband abandoned her, leaving her financially destitute. And when asked by friends how she was doing, she said this, I am fine in the things that count. I am fine in the things that count. What an answer. Talk about her focus being on the right things. In 1918, she was given a small Christian tract. And Pam pointed this out last night. I don't know if she's the one that read it because she was blind. Maybe someone read it to her. Um, but it was written by Lilius Trotter, as I said in the beginning. And a single line in that tract gripped her. So then turn your eyes upon him. Look full into his face and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Helen later wrote, I stood still, and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus, with no one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. Her heart song became her best known hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The first verse of that, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. How much more meaning does that have, knowing that her vision was actually impaired? And it's sometimes when something is taken away that we see more clearly what really, really matters. That's what Esther was doing as she fasted and prayed for those three days. She was turning her eyes upon Jesus. But number two, she was also getting on with life. She didn't just sit in the harem and sing hymns. She had work to do. She prepared a feast. And of course, our activities should be somewhat different. We're in a time of fasting and praying. But in general, uh, rarely are there times where our families or our jobs will let us take three days off to fast and pray. And I love the example. I haven't read the entire book, but I've read excerpts from it of Brother Lawrence in his book, Practicing the Presence of God. And he talks about taking the mundane things, whether it's doing laundry or dishes, caring for your family, and doing them all 
for the glory of God. It's all about the why behind what you do. So life goes on. Um, there's seasons of, op of life where there's different obstacles. I know for me, when I had young children, I was tempted to think, I'm not sleeping at night, I'm never alone, I'm just going to read a verse and go on with my day. And I'm so grateful that I was a part of a mom's group at the time, and there was you know, just mentor women there that said, of all times in your life that you would have your mind in the word of God, you're raising the next generation. And I was so thankful for that admonition and that encouragement. There's never a time in our life where there's an excuse to not have that communion with God. We get to have that communion with God. Number three, gaining an optimistic perspective. We see this in Esther's life. She says, I have come prepared. She had made the feast. So she was praying and hoping that she was going to make it to that feast. She had confidence that God's plan would work. We get so pessimistic sometimes that we're actually surprised when God comes through. She had decided, as Bob would say, to be all in. She was in 100%. If I perish, I perish. So how does she approach the king next on your outline? Charles Swindoll says this, the walk of faith is designed to be a walk of adventure filled with periodic and delightful surprises. With Esther, her walk with God was an exciting adventure. And I don't know about you and I, but, but sometimes I just get stuck in that rut. And I think back to that Stephen Curtis Chapman song, I think it was back in like the 80s or 90s, um, The Great Adventure. He said, started out this morning in the usual way, chasing thoughts inside my head of all I have to do today. And he realized in the words of that song that there's a great adventure. The Christian life was not meant to be boring. If we truly opened our eyes to what God put before us today, what would we discover? What would the opportunities be that he would set before us? Let's look at uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and see some of the character traits that we observe. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So how does she approach the king? A on your outline with patience. She doesn't roar into the inner court. She stood in her regal robes waiting to be recognized, courageously appearing without being summoned. That's how we can approach our problems with confidence and dignity when we've been waiting on the Lord. She's obviously spiritually and emotionally prepared for her moment in history. And as she stepped into God's divine design for her life, another trait that we observe in her is B, restraint. She approached him with restraint, close to confidence, but verbal restraint. She didn't burst into um, what was going on. She, helped, she wasn't hysterical, even though she easily could have been. She didn't point an accusing finger at Haman. She had restraint. She was waiting on God's timing, not manipulating, but playing her cards out. And she says, could you come to a banquet that I've prepared? See, she approaches him with wisdom. God had given her a well-thought-out plan. If you look back to the very first week, when we looked at the first chapter of Esther, 
The king liked feasts, right? He had had a party for a really long time. And no party is complete without food. So she knew that over a meal would probably be the best time to approach him. And there's wisdom in that as we deal with conversations. Um, I think especially with your spouse, probably not discussing anything um, that's at all difficult after a certain time at night. For my husband, it's probably 9 o'clock. And then um, over food, not being hungry or hangry when you approach an important issue. D, she did so with peace and not panic. She was confident, not in her own strength, not prideful, but in God's. Esther answered my wish and my request, if I have found favor in your sight, if it please the king to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I have prepared. Waiting had given her that inner strength to patiently carry out God's plan. It's a lot, a lot of patience. E, she went with singleness of purpose. Notice she doesn't get sidetracked. If, the, if a king said to you or I, I don't know about you, um, I'll give you anything you want, up to half the kingdom, basically anything within reason, I, I'd like to think I would do what God wanted me to do, but I'd probably add a few things. Um, and she was so laser-focused in on God's plan. And I want to point out another time in Scripture, if you feel like you've heard that question before, it was asked again in the New Testament by King Herod. And I feel um, that it's important enough to just read the context of that passage about how another woman responded when she was asked that question. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 17, and it says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet, another feast. There's parallels for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, a familiar phrase, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. How sad. What similar circumstances, but yet different, complete, different outcome. You have Herodias who was completely blinded by revenge. Think about it, beyond that moment, think of all the other things she could have had, but she was so angry and she was so bitter that his head on a platter was what she wanted, completely blinded. And then we see the picture of Esther focused, completely unselfish in her request to save the Jews. How does the king respond? It says, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. So A on your outline, he is pleased. 
a positive response. Obviously, all her prep, God at the same time prepping the king's heart, she stepped up and her moment came and she exuded that confidence and grace. And B, he extends grace. He extends the golden scepter. It's a picture of grace when he could have killed her. How does this relate to God? It's a picture of how we come to God. We should really come to him trembling. We deserve death. But yet he holds out that golden scepter to us. It's a picture that he invites all who will to come and find his mercy and grace. But it mentions that in order to receive that mercy and grace, Queen Esther had to reach out and touch. She touched the tip of that scepter. And in the same way that God has extended that grace to all of us, we have to reach out and accept it. We have to receive that gift. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Not only does he allow her to live, he heaps blessings on her. She wanted her life in one request, and he wants to lavish her. What a picture of God and what he wants to do for us as his children. I want to read these scriptures and just let these words wash over you about God's heart towards you. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. One of my favorites, Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. Philippians 4.19, taking care of our needs according to his riches and glory. In other words, no limit. Our blessings on our children are limited to our earthly means, but our blessings from our heavenly father have no limit. He owns it all. And yet so often we don't enter the throne room. We don't take that time to get close to him. And James 4, 2 says, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes we're not asking enough. Two, how should we approach God? This one is not in your book, but you can just add it in. Number two, how should we approach God? And the rest of it's there. A, with humility. With humility. Esther entered at the king's mercy. She comes humbly. B, with confidence. Confidence in the fact that she had spent time with God and waited, not coming entitled. We live in such an entitled culture. We all struggle with it. She did not come with that attitude. She came with confidence, not in her own abilities, but what Jesus had done. With familiarity through relationship is C. With familiarity through relationship, Esther made her request based on her relationship with the king. And remember what God had done to position her there in his divine design, that she would be there in that position of influence. We often wait until we're in a jam to go to God sometimes, and John 15 reminds us, abide in me. Abide in me, be with me, stay connected to me. I am the vine, you're the branches, and when you're connected to me, you'll bear fruit. Esther bore that fruit because she was in that abiding relationship with God. So we've seen the king, we've seen Esther, now we're gonna look at what do we see in Haman? Quite a different picture. In verses 9 through 13, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him. 
and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And this is not in Rosemary's notes because she's too sweet, but what a spoiled brat. I mean, he, he had just listed off all these things that were so great about himself and all the things he had received. And then because Mordecai doesn't stand up when he walks by, he's bitter and angry and he can't enjoy the rest of things. So A on your outline, he was clearly, clearly self-centered. You look at that conversation with his family and his friends. And for those of you joining us online that weren't able to see Pam's fabulous joke, um, it was a video tonight. And it was a video of sweet children playing with soft music in the background and um, three little boys playing a board game and this precious, precious little girl in her frilly dress bringing out cups for a tea party. And we see her coming in and out and the boys sipping that and enjoying that. And then the video pans and we see where she's getting the water from and she's getting it from the toilet. And she has that sweet look on her face. And I think the parallel that we can see in our story is that Haman was eating it up. He was loving it that Esther was giving him all this attention, but he didn't know why. He didn't know the source of where all this was coming from. It was all about him. We see in 2 Timothy 3.2, it says that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. It described him then, but it describes our culture now. Who would have thought the word selfie would actually be a word? That the focus on self all the time. People actually dying when they're going to national parks because they have to get the perfect selfie at the edge of a cliff. We laugh, but they're doing it. That ultra sense of just focusing on self and what have you done for me lately? That pride consumed him. B on your outline, he was arrogant. He was prideful. Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. See, he was never satisfied. He recounted all that he had to his family and friends, but ultimately genocide against the Jews wasn't enough. He wanted the public humiliation of Mordecai. Again, in verse 13, he said, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. It's true of us sometimes too, though, right? The blessings that God has given us, we can sometimes turn our eyes to the one thing that he hasn't done yet, that maybe he will do, or maybe he won't because he loves us too much. And we've had that problem since the very beginning of time. If you look all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what did they do? They lived in paradise. They had everything. And God said, don't touch this one tree. Don't eat of this one tree. And Satan convinced them of the lie that God was holding out on them. And from that time on, all of us at points in our lives have fallen for that lie. This whole story is birthed out of another story in the Old Testament of someone who just wasn't satisfied with what God had already done. And that story is back in 1 Samuel 15, and it's the story of King Saul. It says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel, and when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt, now go, God's telling Saul, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. He said, totally destroy. Do not spare them. He goes into detail, put to death the men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 
And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Saul does, in fact, attack the Amalekites, but he does not complete the task. He allows the Amalekite king Agag to live. He takes plunder for himself. The Bible says everything that appealed to him and his army and lies about the reason for doing so. When Samuel comes to see him, Samuel hears the, the cattle and he said, what is that? He says, oh, I, I saved some to make sacrifices to the Lord, when that was not at all the reason that he had done that. Saul's rebellion against God and his commands was so serious that God actually rejected him as king. And the last mention that we see of the Amalekites is actually in our story here. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, because King Saul let King Agag live back in Samuel, Haman's family line came from that. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. And for hundreds of years after that time of Saul, the Israelites were attacked and plundered for generations because of his disobedience. We have to be so careful of not embracing and being so completely satisfied in what God has already done for us. If he never did another thing for us outside of salvation, he would owe us nothing. He owes us nothing, but yet he longs to lavish us, and the enemy would love to take our attention off the one thing, maybe that prayer request that you've been waiting for for a long time that's not even selfish. Maybe it's for a wayward child, an unbelieving spouse. It's not a selfish desire, but God would not have you be distracted by that one thing. He wants you to trust him with it. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We have the holidays coming up right around the corner, and especially on a year like this one where vacations have been missed and so many disappointed plans, graduation ceremonies canceled, it would be so easy to say, I deserve, I deserve this. It's Amazon Prime days. I deserve this. It's the Target deals. I deserve this. I'm right there with you. But I want to remind you of a quote by Rabbi Schachtel. Happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you already have. How much would God love to hear us sit back and say, I'm so grateful that I have this. God has been so good to me. And reflect. That's what we do around these tables often in that small group time, reflecting on what God has done. Happiness is not having what you want, but wanting what you already have. Going back to Haman D, he was totally consumed with one issue, his anger and his bitterness. It ruined his joy. What a lesson for us. And not only that, but he had a bad wife. She was a bad influence. Verse 14 says, His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallow 50 feet cubit high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. How sad that that was their suggestion, that that was their solution to the problem. Never underestimate the influence that we can have on those that God has positioned around us. They were a negative influence. She used um, her influence for bad, and his wife literally gave him enough rope to hang himself. So sad. One letter I think we should add to this, letter E, if you want to just write this in, though, is that Haman and all his evil intentions, he was subject to God's sovereignty. That would be my letter E, that he was subject to God's sovereignty. If you look back, when he walked past Mordecai, it said he restrained himself and went home. He didn't restrain himself. God restrained him. Once again, God's 
hand throughout this entire story, holding him back until all the proper pieces were in place to defeat him. Again, God's name not necessarily mentioned in the story, but his fingerprints all over it. And as we close this chapter, it's a real cliffhanger. The gallows are being built. Esther's waiting on God to make her actual request to save her people. But God is never late. He's working out his purposes. That's the whole theme of this book. And I want to close in, um, this morning in a little bit different way. Um, I know sometimes we don't get to all of our homework, and we have that last question that says optional. But I think it should be bonus because um, it's often my favorite part of the homework. And in case you didn't get to read that, I just want to read parts of Psalm 37 and just share a few words of what God taught me as I was doing that homework. And you can get out your books if you'd like to. It's on page 54. And we were encouraged to read Psalm 37 for further study. It's one of my favorite psalms. And it says this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that verse shouldn't be interpreted that we get everything we want. It's that as we delight in him, he actually places right desires into our hearts. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, like Esther did. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. Can you imagine God's face as he saw the gallows being built? Him thinking that, Haman thinking that that was going to be to destroy his enemy when really it would destroy him and his family. Skipping a few verses down to verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. And then verses 39 through 40, as it closes, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, for he is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And there's so many parallels in that psalm, and I love it that, she, that Rosemary included that in the homework. And as you look at this, ultimately, God's the deliverer, God's the rescuer, but he let Esther get to be a part of his design, divine design. He doesn't need us, but he allows us to get to be a part of his plan unfolding. What a privilege that we could easily miss. And Mordecai in wisdom said to Esther, he said, if, if you don't do this, God will raise someone else up. But who knows that God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this? And I think those same words could be spoken over us today. 
the, the, your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, anyone that God puts you in their path, you're placed there for such a time as this. But we have to be ready. And I think those first verses of Psalm 37 show us how to be ready. I wrote in my homework, we have to trust in the Lord. We have to delight in the Lord. We have to rest in the Lord. Do you see the theme there? In the Lord. Not in our own strength. We commit our way to him. And it says that he delights in ordering our steps. So I want to pray today as we close that God would order our steps today. That he would make our life today an adventure. That something would happen that we hadn't planned that God and his divine design has. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit SheridanHouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.